I think in a lot of different ways, but usually the way I'm sort of transmitting information is, is through this type of therapy, yeah. which is to just get the person to be okay with it, to, to know it, to find it in some places. And then from there, what do you want to do about it, mm. if anything, right? What type of person do you want to be? And what does it take for you to come from the truth of where you are now to this person that you want to be? Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig New Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week, I welcome my new friend, Dr. Aquilas Gordon, who grew up in Mobile, Alabama, and is the Associate Professor of Psychology and Director of the Counseling Program at Maryville College in Knoxville, Tennessee. He received his PhD and Master's in Counseling Psychology from the University of Texas, and he mainly focuses on personality, men's mental health, and sexuality. Quay and I connected via TikTok, and if you use that app at all, I would definitely suggest giving him a follow if you are at all interested in understanding more about personality types. If you want to keep up with the podcast, subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now. You can find a consistent conversation happening on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Dig News Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Aquilas Gordon. So you focus a lot of your work on Myers-Briggs, correct? Sure. I mean, I... For the purposes of TikTok, I do talk a lot about the Myers-Briggs because I think that is what people know. But personally, I think more in terms of what are called the cognitive functions. Have you okay. heard of this? No, explain it, please. So the Myers-Briggs came about because Myers and Briggs, there were two women, mother, uh, not mother, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, sort of got together and they were looking at Carl Jung's work, hmm. which is... He wrote this book in like, I don't know exactly when he wrote it, but the English translation came out in 1923. Mm. <laughs> so sometime before 1923. Yeah. And it basically outlines eight different, what he calls psychological types that we now call cognitive functions. And so what the Myers and what Myers and Briggs did, or what the Myers Briggs does, is that it takes those cognitive functions. And it arranges them, or it looks at the top two, and then it takes those top two and it makes this sort of code for you, which is the Myers-Briggs type. Yeah. So for, let's say, an ENFP, your top cognitive function would be extroverted intuition. Yeah. Which is to say that's the dominant way that you're in the world, if you're an ENFP versus an INFP. Yeah. And so the extroverted intuition function is one that looks out in the world and they're really interested in making connections to things. One reason that that ENFPs and ENTPs tend to kind of be on that borderline is because our particular type of extroversion sort of goes back into our head. So we'll look at something and then we'll start making connections about it. Yes. Right, like, oh, this is just like that. Or, oh, I wonder what it would look like over here. Right. So we sort of come away from the extroversion pretty quickly and start to process or make connections and these type of things. That tracks. Um, so, yeah, that's your your first function. And then we'll just do the two. Your next function would be introverted feeling, 
And so this idea is that like you have all of the letters and you have an introverted and an extroverted side. Hmm. And so the next one is the introverted feeling. And this is where a person is sort of inside of themselves. They have a really sort of personal sense of value. They have a personal sense of justice, what's right and wrong. They have a personal sense of authenticity. And this is compared to an extroverted feeling, which is a person who really bases what's right and wrong on what other people sort of really just kind of want from them. Yeah. So if the group says, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, then, oh, I feel bad for doing it. Where an introverted feeler can say, no, that's not my value. I'm going to do it anyway, or I'm not supposed to do it. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. That's so helpful. I, I, um, much of my time that I spend in terms of thinking about personality has been these days, you won't be surprised to hear this likely, the Enneagram. Did you know sure, I was going to say that sure. already? I did. Um, <laughs> now, as someone who's a former pastor, the denomination I was a part of had us do all the personality profiles. Oh, interesting. Sure. Yeah. Um, and they focused a lot of the energy on the Enneagram. Um, have you done that test before? Do you know what number you are? Um. I have. That's one question I get a lot of my lives. So maybe Is I should it? have known. Yeah, everybody asks me about the Enneagram. For me, it's harder to <laughs> conceptualize because it doesn't, because the nomenclature isn't obvious, right? Like yeah, you look yeah, yeah. at a, a type and you're like, oh, this means this, this means this. And you can sort of put together what that might be or what that might mean about a person's character. The Enneagram, you just have to like remember the number you know means this paragraph <laughs> and for me that's harder so the i know that, about it but i don't use it as much go ahead the reason i find things anything useful that is about knowledge of self is that well this is the way i operate and it helps me to notice those things rather than judge them right sure. so if sure. i think about the enneagram what i find helpful about that is what is the core fear or motive that i have right when it comes to engagement of any kind and so when you think about these psychological, you say cognitive functions, mm-hmm. does that deal with this sort of core meaning and value, or is it describing more the way that you operate in the world? I think it describes the way that you operate. I think some of those things would get captured by, if you think about like core values, that would just be what type of feeler are you, right? Mm, yeah. And so that distinction I was talking about, right? Like, it sort of is captured in there, but it doesn't go further to describe what that necessarily is. It just is going to describe kind of where it comes from or yes. how you attend to it, I guess. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. No, I find, I mean, I find it all helpful. I'm eager at all times to be like, oh, that's new. That's, inf- that's new information. I also have discovered that over time, and I don't know if this is a function of age new information or what, that my understanding of the way that I operate is very different. Now, anyone that knew me in my 20s and 30s would say, clearly an extrovert, Um, right? So like that outgoing, I could show up in a room and and all that stuff. That is exhausting to me, actually. Yes. And and I I, dread it. (laughs) Were you, so this is, this was true of me and it's often true of ENFPs. When we're younger, we're kind of you could describe this as bubbly you know yes we're sort of bubbly we're a little um we're we're charismatic but but sometimes to a fault sometimes to the point where people are like 
to chill or leave me alone or stop touching me, you know, like <laughs> whatever. That, that and so yeah. we, I think as we get older, one thing that's happening is we sort of just have to learn what people's boundaries are, like what's appropriate and with whom and where and when. But uh, there's this guy named Dario Nardi and he does some research on this stuff too. And he talks about how as we get older, and I, and I love this, I haven't researched it myself, but as we get older, basically every letter, he said that when he tests older people, it's difficult to distinguish them. So let's say the ENFP again, from an extrovert with every other letter switched, which mm. would be an ESTJ. So for me, I think about this is is almost like gaining wisdom. Yeah. So if you're a person whose dominant way of being is I want to try new things, I want to make new connections, I don't want to do the same thing twice, I get bored easily, you know, this this young extroverted intuitive, what you need to mature in some ways are things that are stable, things that are constant, things that are routine or regular right that you don't have to buy a new cereal every time you go to the grocery store (laughs) like you can just go and you know what you want and like that's that's a mature thing or if you are feeling type and everything's about how you feel about things that one way to mature is to say you know what i don't feel like doing x but i ought to have to Mm. you know i don't have to listen to my feelings all the time and and so you become you sort of begin to incorporate some of this opposite uh, of yourself. And I think that's maturity because yeah. if you looked at, at somebody who's older and they were still that way, right. They, they, it, either way, like just sort of this one-sided way that would look immature in some ways that would look yes. like, why can't you ever do something you don't feel like doing? You know, why can't you ever just show up at the same time, you know, or whatever yeah. it is. Oh, that's so helpful to understand. It makes a lot of sense. I also think that, I don't, I don't know how much you interact with this in your work, your study on TikTok, any of that stuff. But as someone who grew up in fundamentalist Christianity, I was very much taught that uh, to lose yourself was the goal. And so there was, there was a focus against, like you're sort of striving against what's true for you. Mm. And I just talked about this with a recent guest that um, we're trying to discover an older our older age, what it means to, I, to be me, like, you know, so like, what do I like? What have you found that people in your, in your research in any of the people you work with, that there's a resistance to embracing any of their own identity, identity or personality because of some of those things? You mean because of religion, because of some, um, some like outwardly imposed, you should be this way. Sure. So someone's trying to live into that rather than their own identity. Sure. I mean, I think that's something that I would work on with somebody with, with the client, right? Yeah. Which is to say, I've definitely had clients come in and, and they're thinking through a particular cultural or religious lens. Yes. Right. And we have to sort of, for me, I usually try not to break that. Like I'm not a person who's just right. trying to take anybody's religion or like, <laughs> I'm not really trying to do that work in there with them unless they, unless they want that work done. Absolutely. And so usually what I try to do is just accommodate that and try to speak through that lens and apply some wisdom that might be relevant to them with that context. If that makes sense. Makes complete sense. 
your your so, job is not to like remove the foundations of their understanding of themselves. Right, right. Freud famously said, uh, "Respect the defenses." Right. Mm, that yes. if people have these things sort of built up, your job is not to come and just remove that. Your job is to sort of help them to remove it themselves or to the point that they don't need it. Uh, one of my favorite young young quotes is um, he says. Uh, to inculcate a truth and, and inculcate means, you know, for people who don't know, inculcate means like to just sort of drill it into a person. Yeah. I, I tell my students, and I don't know if they actually, this may be a bad example for them, um, that you probably learned your timetables through inculcation, Absolutely. right? Like four plus four, you know, blah, 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 four times yeah. four, whatever. Um, but to inculcate a truth appeals only to the patient's brain. Mm. If we help them to grow up to the truth, in the course of their own development, then we have reached their heart. Mm. And this appeal goes deeper and acts with greater force. And so for me that, you know, I'm not trying to rip their defenses. It's about helping them realize something about themselves that they might say, do I still need this? Yeah. And then yes. if they present that question, then we can work on it. Right. That's so good. I think it applies individually and societally. And this is one of those things that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the content that I make is about deconstruction of yeah. whiteness and particularly the religion side, but mostly just whiteness and white supremacy culture. And I, you know, a lot of people that I have grown up with white folks are get angry with other white folks and are trying to do that inculcation thing. It's like, mm -hmm. you're evil. You're, yes. I can't, you know, this whole thing when we know ourselves, that's not how we came out of it. That's not yeah. how we started to deconstruct, you know, and so that sort of thing does apply on a societal level. The reason that we still find ourselves in this place in 2023 is because of maybe because of this, mem just do this, memorize this is right mm -hmm. and this is wrong, rather than getting to the heart of why it's important to be human towards each other. Yeah, man, I, I'm in the middle of, and I've been through plenty of these coming up through academia, right? the the black guy if not often the only black guy um yeah where i get put in these sort of dei or whatever they're calling it this decade uh <laughs> trainings and it's so you know there's some good stuff in there there's some good information but it doesn't feel like the work it just feels like knowledge and sort of compartmentalizing and just you know, watching your speech, but, but there's no sort of work. And I don't know, to some degree, I find it frustrating because it's like, this isn't it. I, I was watching this one. We, I'm in the middle of it. You know, now we're doing this online course where credential that, you know, yeah, I got, I got signed up for. <laughs> and, um, you know, they were talking about um, microaggressions and stereotype threat. And so we watched this video and here's this video of this, woman who does something to a man of color which i didn't see as a microaggression it felt like straight up like she's just, just yeah like she's just aggressive. saying yeah she's just saying racist stuff and so and so like they were like what would your response be would it be ignore it would it be to get mad at this person or would it be and so they give you the, re the correct response which is to stop the class and give them an assignment where they write you know a paragraph about what it means to be and it's like that does it <laughs> like, like like we're five years old go up to the chalkboard and write it yeah, over again i won't be racist yeah, <laughs> exactly you know and it's like that doesn't 
get to it. It doesn't speak to the heart. I felt like the most appropriate response was anger, like like to sort yes. of be mad for the person she's, you know, the person who's being oppressed in that moment to demonstrate to the class that response, you know, like mm. that that's a human response that I think people would feel and take to heart Yes. versus let's do an assignment that reminds you of the rules or I don't know. Oh, I love this conversation because I'm actually in the process. I have learned through many years now of being in this journey that there are ways I've been part of all those trainings too. And they have always felt like they fall short Mm -hmm. and do what you're saying. So I'm developing some that, and I I was talking with some people, they're like, well, you you know, at some point you got to do microaggressions. And I'm like, but I don't think that anyone's ready for microaggressions until uh, unit 10 <laughs> yeah. because, because there's no, like even ally training it, you know, usually it's like modules. It's like one, two, three, you do bias, you know, they're standard. You, we know the drill, they go in an order, but you're, you're exactly right. You've got a room full of mostly white people. Most of the time, then you've got maybe a one or two people, you know, black, brown, indigenous people of color, and you're training them as though they're all coming at this from oh, the yeah. same vantage point. Oh yeah. When I teach this in class, I mean, I haven't done it yet, but um, Resma, last Medican. name, Medican, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I've I've listened to a lot of his stuff too, and he advises oh, it should be separate. So good, you know. And I I personally struggle with what that reaction would be like. I work at a private school in you know Appalachia, Tennessee, you know, East yeah. Tennessee, you know, and. I don't know what would happen if I were like, you know, Monday, we're going to have the students of color and Wednesday, the white students are going to come in and we're going to do separate lesson. You know, I I think there'd be a lot of pushback, you know? Yeah. HR would not allow it. (laughs) Of course. But what happens of course is, you know, I'm basically teaching to white students, you know, because that's most of the, who's in the room and the students of color are having to, in some ways suffer through it yeah and then in in other ways be the other teachers right yes. and and what they're doing is sort of hearing about their oppression which they know very well mm. and then offering examples or having to hear students you know counter their examples and so it's just this weird this weird process and, and i will say that that is exactly why I, i've been all over your stuff man is because <laughs> it felt like you know, and you're speaking to it now that you were coming from a different place. Yeah. And I expect it probably has to do with your sort of training as, as a pastor, which is to speak to the heart to some degree. Yeah. Rather so. than come from this kind of academic place of these are the words you need to learn and yeah. how you need to operate without knowing how or why you're operating that way. Yeah. Very, very well could be. Could, you know, there's personality stuff. And I had this happy accident of going to a seminary where I was one out of three white people in, cl- in classes mm. of 50. So like I would hear about racism and I was like 20, mid twenties, uh, mid to upper twenties. I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking this way. I was like, it's like sink or swim. You mm. had to learn it. And some people, some people drowned and sure. they <laughs> swing and drown. And they're like, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to believe you. It, but there was something about the space and the way that I've been raised and all this stuff that enabled me to see you know, and that once you see, you can't unsee mm. and that, you know, like 15, 16 years of that will doing the work will get you there. Yeah. And I think you start to realize 
this might be one of the hardest lessons is that we want to fight. We want to mm. prove that we're right and we want to get there. But back on the point you were saying about these students of color who have to endure these things, it's like one giant microaggression after another for them sure. to go through DEI trainings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like just the fact that you have to attend this thing where you have to learn about the ways that yeah. this culture has oppressed you with your oppressor is not okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there are times when, when it's hard for me to teach it. Yeah. It's hard for me to sort of, be the arbiter of that because i'm like i don't know if i'm in a place to not be reactive i don't know if i'm in a place to be patient mm. and tolerant you know and and you know what they're going to say you know i've I, almost 10 years at this right and so you know what's what's going to come back at you and it's like i don't know i don't know if i can do it today and so <laughs> and so sometimes i'll pull it back i'll be like i'm not no we're not going to do that lesson because that's the one they really get mad at you know <laughs> And so I don't and know. And you don't want to take the hits. Like you don't yeah. want to take that makes so much sense. So yeah. you're so you're you're doing this in an uh extra space. This isn't within your classes. You're no, it is. Oh, it is. Okay. It is. You know, I mean it's university stuff. So they're for the right reasons, right? Like there's a big push yeah. for like including this multicultural lessons, especially in psychology. You know, psychology. Mm -hmm in one way or another in the in the right way or the wrong way tends to be at some of the forefront of this most mm. social sciences i would say yeah and so you know we i'm talking about this in like intro psych and so these are like 18 year old freshmen who've this is one of their first classes they're wow. taking and yeah. it's like chapter five multiculturalism wow. and they're immediately <laughs> like whoa whoa do we have to come? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that that is fascinating. And context is everything. But, you know, like I'm in the Northeast, as you know, and um, it's a different world a little bit up here. Yeah. But we're really proud of our liberalism. Sure. sure. And But if you've spent if you spent more than a weekend in the greater Boston area, you know that we are not all that integrated. Yeah. And this this idea that in some way throughout the country that we have moved through our racial caste system in a way that's like, you know, something to be proud of is is a wild thing. And so I guess when it comes to us understanding ourselves and, you know, the work that you do, I think this is why it's so important to drill this point home that who you are, the way you were raised, the way that your mind works is has can be separated from morality stay more so one of the one of the biggest defenses that we have as white folks mm. when we're mm. told about certain things that we've inherited mm -hmm. whether it's familial or societal there's this instant gut reaction to say no no no, I, no that's not me right because right. we need to see ourselves as good right morally right. good that's the ego, man. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the ego's job is to, is to make you be able to tolerate yourself. Ooh. Right. Like I Freud's, yeah. Freud's whole idea of the, of the unconscious was that the reason we have an unconscious is because we are and do and think and believe and act in ways that are intolerable, that would be intolerable to us. Right. Intolerable to us. Yeah. And, and so, we couldn't live with ourselves in some ways if all of that just kind of got stirred up. And so we have developed this place in the dark that we can put it 
where we don't have to deal with it and look at it, right? And the ego's main job is to sort of maintain that structure to say, oh, oh no, no, that's that's not you. Don't worry about that. Or here's the reason, right? All the defense mechanisms, right? Uh, everybody does that. So yeah. why why am I a bad person, right? Yes. And it's all to sort of like prop you up and to be like, I'm I'm not such a bad person, am I? You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important. And, and you know, we're we're having this conversation on the heels of the Jason Aldean song being all over the place and everything. And one of the biggest reactions that I've seen from some white folks that are not aware of their whiteness is, I got to be honest, I, you know, they're quietly saying this. I don't see it. Sure. I don't get it. Yeah. And then, of course, they get jumped on. Um, and <laughs> yeah. which, which, you know, whatever, it is the nature of the beast. This is yeah. like, no one's just going to be like, hey, man, do you want, if you want to ask some questions, why don't you come over here? <laughs> right, right. But there, this, this, um, one questions are not allowed. Two, um, people have this immediate, I'm, I've got to defend myself. Mm -hmm. But I, what I think is important about understanding personality and doing this understanding and research around, um, our cognitive functions is to demoralize or take that away. And I don't know, I'm no psychologist. I'm not trained that way. What does it look like? I mean, you have, you have people that you work with through therapy, you teach, you do research. Um, what does it look like to help people work through some of those uh, things to move past that def initial defense? Is it validation? What works? You know, validation, of course. I mean, that's sort of just to keep the engine running. Like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, but, but, but the answer is, is, is always acceptance you know mm. like you have to sort of start in the truth you know and and so sometimes there's some work there right there's some work towards acceptance i i practice something called acceptance and commitment therapy mm. and it's a type of cbt i mean I, I think in a lot of different ways but usually the way i'm sort of transmitting information is, is through this type of therapy yeah. which is to just get the person to be okay with it, to, to know it, to find it in some places. And then from there, what do you want to do about it? Mm. If anything, right? What type of person do you want to be? And what does it okay. take for you to come from the truth of where you are now to this person that you want to be? Right. Yeah. And you don't have to go anywhere. You know, <laughs> you can say, you know, I'm a racist that I think I want to be one, you know? <laughs> And it's like, well, that's fine. You know, like, I mean, it's not good. That. It's not good, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. Like it's a way yeah. to be, and you'll be true to yourself. This is why you'll hear black and brown folks, right? Say like, I'd rather deal with, with an outward racist, with yeah. a racist who admits it and knows it, right? Because they are in the accepting place and they know what they are. And you don't have to sort of do this dance with them of, was that racist? No, of course not. Of course it wasn't. I wouldn't, you know, and now <laughs> you have to coddle them into, you know, feeling like, and so, uh, yeah, I think that place to start is just acceptance. And yeah. then you, you go from there. Yeah. I love that. I think I've talked about this with some people before that most people don't want to be seen or connected with the KKK or right. with Nazis. Most right. people don't want to be labeled racist so they have or or you throw put the negative thing out there right right they don't want that label they don't believe that about themselves and so there has to be a way if that's you're talking with someone you say this this is who i am or this is who you want to be 
This is who you want to be right here. Mm-hmm. What is it going to take for you to get there? I love that because that's when I was doing therapy for years, it was like, I know this about myself. Mm-hmm. I get to either accept that this is just who I am or I can work, do some work to move through that and get to this place. Yeah. And, and some of that, I mean, that's some of what the therapy or the therapist, I should say, is is doing too, mm-hmm. right? Is 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 letting you be that person and and accepting you being the person who says okay you've come to that you know understanding you've come to that truth or you did that thing right i'm not running out the door you know i'm not <laughs> freaking out i'm not yelling at you it's just okay validation right yes um and so and, and i know i've heard you talk about this with, with other guests right this idea of that I don't know if there's been a space for white folks to do that work yeah. to sort of admit it and not get so much pushback that they automatically sort of back up. Yeah. Because they sort of have to stand on that stage. They have to stand on that truth before they can go anywhere else. And so there's this weird, you know, not to make excuses, but like there's this weird tension of, well, if I say this, I'm going to get so much pushback that I, I'm not going to be able to move on past it. Yes. And there has to be, I think, some space, maybe in private, safe space, for them to say, this is who I really am. This is what I believe. These are the things I've thought and felt, you know, but I don't want to. Right. Yeah. And there's the next step. Oh, I love that. So I guess I, I wonder from like a psychologist's point of view, when you see societal things happen, you're not a sociologist, but like you can see minds working together. <laughs> You know, sure. Um, and what we do, and we've got this whole concept around what people are calling cancel culture, which I think has mm-hmm. just always been in existence. It's just who's had the power to do it. When you see people using their voice to silence, mm-hmm. um, is there a part of you, like, do you have a reaction to that based on what you know about the way minds work, based on the conversation we're having? Do, what is your reaction to seeing? people told to shut up or people called certain names. Do you find that in any way useful? Is there a place for that? What do you think? I think so. I mean, I think you need a little bit of both, right? You need a little Malcolm and you need a little Martin, Mm. right? You need the speak truth to that power. You need the, this is how that hurts me. You need the, you know, the, the angry professor saying, I, you cannot do that. You know, you need that reaction for it to be somewhat real and visceral, but you do also need an opening, a a place to land, a place to go think and talk about that reaction. Right. And so I think the problem with some social media stuff is, is that loudest sort of angry pushback is all you hear. Yep. And so you don't get a lot of, hey, calling people in, right? Come over here and let's talk about that. Yeah. Let, let's talk <laughs> about what went wrong and like how you, you know, but you need, I think you need both. And, because yeah. also you can't deny the people's reaction, you know, like yeah. if, if that's how they feel, like exactly that's how they feel. And that's sort <laughs> of a piece of the whole engine of like, if you say that, if you do that, if you put that out there, this is what that does to other people. Yes. Yeah. That's so huge. Yeah, it's just a natural consequence too, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. It's real <laughs> whether life. or not it's good or bad is not even yeah. the question in the end. It's what it is. Yeah. So yeah. when you're, do you um do you get a lot of people 
either in your own context or on social media, um, engaging with those kinds of conversations or do people stick mainly with your, with like personality and the research that you do, or you, or you get sucked in because it feels like if you're anywhere on this platform, you're getting sucked into the conversation in some way. I'll be honest. And this is my own stuff that I'm like currently working through, to be honest. Mm. I mean, TikTok has made me sort of be thoughtful about this because I think in front of a classroom, it's still private enough. I'm still aware of some things and people's responses, but it, it it's still private, private enough that I feel a little bit more open to kind of discuss this stuff and put myself in hot water with, you know, a classroom full of students, et cetera. I don't know if I'm there yet in, yeah. in sort of this big public way, you know? Yeah. Um, that makes so much but, sense. And not because I don't want to be open, but because I don't know if I can tolerate the comments and having that be sort of my experience on TikTok is going through and getting angry and getting upset. And and like, the, I, I'm sure that it must be, you know, what's that like? Well, well, it's different for me, though. You know this because, sure, like, of course, <laughs> because I'm a white guy and it don't, yeah. it doesn't hit me in the way that it would hit you. Right. It just doesn't. Right. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My brother, I have a brother who has two accounts and they're both like gigantic on TikTok. Oh, and, really? Wow. And he's the quintessential nice guy. He won't do anything. If someone t- brings up politics, he shuts it down. He won't even engage. Interesting. You know, and I get it because like, I, I understand this need to self-preserve and be like, you know what? Right. I just, I'm out here doing this thing. Okay. Right. <laughs> like, right. I don't want to go there. I want it to be a little fun. I, yeah. I want it to be something I enjoy doing. I don't want it to be something that I have to, you know, judge up so much energy for just to open the app and be like, what's coming in today? Yes. You know? Yes. And I think as you're saying, right, like that happens in my life enough that like, like that this is a bit of a safe space. So yeah, currently for me, I'm trying to keep it in the lane, you know, Smart. when when people ask me about it, that's something that might come up in a live. I'll just give them a really vague, like, you know, well, everybody's got feelings. And like, it's just a very therapist answer of like not saying much at all. Um, solid. That's solid. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think for me, I'm just not in that place yet. That, that, no, would, and that, be, that would be too much. I totally, totally get that. So um, when it comes to your own interests and research what does that look like these days my research mainly is around personality is Mm. around sort of personality psychology i do some stuff with like adhd uh as well and and sort of different presentations of disorders but mainly that's connected to the personality stuff i'm i'm trying to see what disorders we can capture in personality Mm. right uh for me i was really curious about ADHD as really just an extreme personality. Yeah. And yep. what I found is that it's actually has a really high correlation with extroverted intuition, that first <laughs> function that we share. Yep. Right. But, I mean, because you think about like, oh, what is that? What how does that go with this? And like that, that's what it looks like, right? That's that couldn't resonate more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm 
and so we talk about these things like neurodivergence and I, and that word is almost trying to get at what I'm thinking about, which is this idea that we're not disordered. It's, it's just a difference. It's just, uh, maybe we could call it an aberration if it's rare enough, but it's really just a difference. And I think about it from almost like an evolutionary standpoint that if you've got a village of people and everybody every day is going out to the field to whatever, plant the corn, pick the corn, and you've got the one guy who's like, what's that over there? Is that a beehive? Let me go see what, you know, what's that sticky stuff? And it's like, oh, this guy brought the bees, you know, brought honey back. Yeah. You you need that, right? Yes. You, You sort of need that. You don't need everybody to be doing it, but it would probably be helpful if somebody was like that. And I think that's that's who ADHD people are is those people who are supposed to go off the path a little bit and bring the honey home. (laughs) Okay. That's amazing. I love this because I have the same. So I work at a school where there's a lot of students with diagnoses and they're on medications. Mm -hmm. It's heartbreaking to me because generally I view the world the way that you just described, which Mm -hmm. is we're, there are norms and standards set for sameness. This is what Mm -hmm. you, this is what it means to function well in this society. If you don't function well in this society, that means you're neurodivergent or you're throw the, throw the sickness on when all it is, is your brain has adapted to, or or been, you know, you've had, you've inherited a brain, (laughs) you didn't create it. And it's use, it's like adapting to the world. Everything is about about adaptation. And so when you're connecting with people, when you're study, you know, when you throw names on all these things, it makes it so difficult to have a conversation when you've got Mm -hmm. like this person, because their brain works that way, they need this medication when it's Mm -hmm. just like, do they need that? Or are we, are we getting in the way of them being fully the way that they would operate in this world? That would be useful to all of us. Right. I I think that's exactly it. You know, I, I teach abnormal psychology as well. And, and I say that like, there are a host of disorders. I mean, I'm teaching like the textbook version, but I'm also yeah. like over here footnote, right? <laughs> there are all of these disorders where the distress of a disorder is not <clears throat> inherent in the disorder. You yes. think about d- depression, for instance, like that is inherently distressing to, to most people. It's not always. But yeah. to most people, they think, I don't want to feel like this. I, I, you know, I'd rather be doing this, but I only feel like staying in the bed or I wish I could, right? Like there is this inherent distress to it. Hmm. ADHD isn't that way. Autism isn't that way. In some cases, schizophrenia isn't that way, hmm. right? It, it's the It's the box that you're supposed to be in yes. of... You have to be like this. That's where the distress comes from. Yes. You know, I have a hard time with routine or I have a hard time remembering where things are or showing up on time. You know, that's where the rub comes. It's not the thing itself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.